It's desire, our desire this morning that you would apply those words that we just sang to our lives. That you would do the work that we need you to do in terms of speaking, in revealing, of illuminating, of helping us to see truth and apply truth to our lives, to live the truth that you've given to us in consistency, in faithfulness, through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's not to draw attention to ourselves, O oh God, but to draw attention to the glorious one, the God who has made us your own, who has called us to yourself, who has declared the end from the beginning, the one for whom all of creation will bow before as we sing your praises and as Philippians chapter 2 says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that you would uh, use your word this morning to draw us closer to yourself. Inform our hearts and help us to know where we're out of step and And God, draw us deeper into relationship with yourself. Align our affections with yours. Help us to be people who are about your purposes, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So do that for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been thinking about uh, the passage for this week. I I realize how out of sync, how out of step, how antithetical the truths that we're going to be looking at this morning are with worldly thinking. In the 1800s and 1900s, there was a philosophy that that began uh, called existentialism. Soren Kierkegaard is the one who is credited with being the first existentialist philosopher. Uh, He proposed that each individual not society or religion, is solely responsible for giving the meaning to life and living passionately and sincerely or authentically. Ralph Waldo Emerson, living in the same time, uh, picked up this theme. He and, and Henry David Thoreau uh, were poets and, uh, and wrote for a living, and um, their Philosophies were punctuated, their their writings were punctuated by by, by this bent. Ralph Waldo Emerson, growing up uh, between 1801 and 1882, was actually uh, born into a a family with a pastor as a father, a Unitarian minister. His father died when he was eight years old, and the family became destitute and dependent on their own ingenuity. Emerson later credits this iron band of poverty as kind of being the catalyst for, for moving him into interdependence or excuse me, uh, independence and self-reliance. In 1840, he wrote this in his journal. He says, In all my lectures, I have taught one doctrine, namely the infinitude of the private man. In his work, Self-Reliance, he says this, insist on yourself, never imitate. 
He also says, it is only as a man puts off all foreign support and stands alone that I see him to be strong and to prevail. Ask nothing of men, and in the endless mutation, thou only, firm column, must presently appear the upholder of all that surrounds thee. Meaning, you must support yourself. Your independence, your isolation, your strength, your self-reliance alone is what can support you as a person. And as it became the spirit of the age, it has become the prevailing spirit spilling into the 21st century. It has become the, the spirit that we have seen in 2020, the, the, the quarantine independent culture. Isolation from any outward influence, deriving truth based upon your own self-determination. It is antithetical to what we're going to see this morning from our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. Everything that we're going to see this morning in, actually, actually 1 Peter chapter 2, will, will help to point us in the direction, not of self-reliance, but of interdependence, dependence upon the body of Christ. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read these three verses as we press in to this passage today. There's only three points that we'll have as we work our way through. The first point is crave the word or crave the word of God. Love the people of God. And finally, what's the last one? <laughs> I'll get there. Remember the goodness of God. Crave the word of God. Love the people of God. Remember the goodness of God. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right at the beginning of this passage, we have the word so or the word therefore. It begins this section to help point back to what has preceded it. It is a, a hinge word that helps you understand this section of scripture is not independent of what has come before, but, but Peter is building as those who were in the first century often did in their writings, they would build on truth and help you to understand that, that what is coming is based upon or founded on what is preceding it. We have come to understand this as a, as a hinge word, but unlike the hinge word of therefore in, in chapter 1, verse 13, therefore pre preparing your minds for action, uh, this word actually has greater emphasis. It is meant to say this expects and requires your attention. Listen up. Therefore, is a marker of result. It's a marker of greater emphasis than other markers in the scripture. It's meant to provide an emphatic point. Peter is building on his thoughts from, from verses 22 to 25. And, and immediately you're gonna be, begin to see the similarities. He says in Chapter 1, verse 22, you have purified your soul in obedience to the truth. Verse 23, you have been born again, 
not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then verse 25, the second part, this is the word, the good news that was preached to you, the repeated emphasis of the scripture. And so as we move our way into chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, He's going to continue to exalt and and to highlight and help you understand the significance of the word of God as being central to what he commands in verses 22 to 25. Love one another. How does it work itself out? How does it happen in the Christian life? How do you progress in your life as a Christian? You're only able to do this as you understand the significance of the word of God. Immediately, we see these connections. Born again in verse 23 and the newborn babes that we see in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 2, being new infants, craving the pure spiritual milk. That is our first point. We're going to begin in verse 2 because that's where the main verb of this next section is found. Crave the word of God. It means to long for it's a, an aorist, active imperative, which means that it is a, a command. It, is, it comes with force. It is, is an expectation in the Christian life. It is notable, however, that Peter did not command to read the word or to study the word or to memorize the word or teach the word or preach the word or search the word, which are all part of the Christian life as well. But, but he, he presses in even deeper. He, he wants to go to the, the heart of, of what makes all of those things worthwhile, not just an academic exercise, not just going through the motions, but crave the word, desire the word, long for, want the word more than anything else, desire it in your life, Begin to cultivate and nurture this deep hunger for the Scripture. That word crave is a, is a strong one. It's, it's used of ardent desire. And Peter puts this in really vivid, vivid terms. He, he could have made the point by saying, as babies desire the milk of the Word. But he, he adds a modifier. He, he wants you to understand that as newborn babies crave, uh, basically those who are born just now, <laughs> they, they've just come out of the womb. This, this fresh experience from the very beginning of, of your spiritual life, it is this automatic response of, of craving what sustains you, what helps you grow, the, the very thing that, that, that caused you to be born again that we find in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, is, is also the thing that now that, that helps to cultivate and lead you to greater experiences of health and maturity and fellowship with, with God himself. This picture of a baby who's just been born. And those of you who have babies or who have had babies will understand those, those regular patterns and cycles of life where babies will crave the, the milk and they're crying and demanding and asking creates this rhythm in the home, desiring dependence in life and growth and mothers who are tenderly caring for the needs of that little baby. Peter commands them to do this. Steer your affections in this way. Instruct your cravings. Develop your appetites. Teach your taste buds. 
Orient your affections. Discipline your desires. Unlike the desire we see in chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We recognize that there are passions built in, but that's not what Peter is trying to call them to. He's trying to call them to the new life, the new passions, the new cravings that are to replace those former passions and former cravings. This new life creates new inner desire, new inner cravings for the Scripture. You were born of the Word, and now you can grow because of the Word. But notice the quality of the Word that Peter points out from chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. What are the marks of this Word, this living and abiding Word? It says in verse 24, All flesh is like grass. All its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Do you find yourself getting frustrated in life? Uh, Do you find yourself getting a little put out by all the energy that you expend on things that you have to do again and again and again? I can't tell you the number of times my kids have asked me the question, Daddy, what is the point of cleaning, of cleaning this place up? It's just going to get dirty again, right? Or, or, or maybe how often is it that you wash the car and it never fails, that rain comes that day and tomorrow you need to wash it again? We walk in, the, in, our, in our neighborhood, our community. It's, it's interesting. It seems like almost every time we walk by this one house, there's a guy who's always doing something, messing with his car, cleaning it up, detailing it. It looks beautiful, but he's going to have to do it all to, again tomorrow. Or what about the investment of energy that you spend in, in weeding those flower beds? Like, like what's the use, Right? Or when you study for a test and you, and you realize that, that all of that information that you have studied uh, one week, you're going to have to study all over again when you take that final. Or when you pursue that relationship and there's conflict, you just can't seem to overcome. The investment of energy just seems to be such a waste of time. Or when you invest in that time at work and, and all of that energy just seems to, to, to burn up. It's, Seems like a waste of time. But the one thing, one of the few things of life that comes with a guarantee is what we find here in our passage today. The word is living. The word abides. The word is unlike the pursuits of this life. It will not wither. It will not fail. It is the imperishable seed. It will endure. It is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. That is the quality of the word that Peter is talking about, the the word of God that will have its effect in you and will have its effect in the world around you. The imperishable word, the living and abiding word of God. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, when he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you 
as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. The word of God will have its way. It will produce the fruit it's intended to produce. God will use the imperishable quality of his word to accomplish his purposes. So spend your life on that which matters. Devote your energy, your time, your resources, your priorities in cultivating this craving. Develop a desire for that which comes with a guarantee. It lives and abides forever. But maybe you would say, well, Pastor Andrew, there was a time when I craved the word of God there was a time where, where I felt this deep desire to know God through his word more often. I, I've tried to continue to cultivate that. I, I, I want it to be true of my life, but, but it's, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. It's, it's so mechanical. I want that craving. What is, what is out of sync in my life? Well, first, I want you to understand that that which God commands, God empowers And if he is calling you to crave his word, he will, by his spirit, allow you to enjoy that craving, to to plant that craving within your heart and life, to to cultivate that craving. But but what we're going to see in verse 1 is is there is something that often gets in the way. There's something that, that, that becomes an obstacle to experiencing that kind of craving, the kind of craving that God wants you to have in your life for the word of God. There is a prerequisite There is a potential obstacle. And Peter wants to draw your attention to the obstacle in verse 1 when he says, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. What is is Peter getting at? What is is the goal? What, What is the obstacle that often stands in the way? Well, to to pull this in from chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we need to understand that he's building on a theme of loving one another. What often gets in the way of a craving for the word is an unwillingness to love the people of God. I find in my own life, and maybe you have as well, that when there is heartache and suffering and frustration and conflict and adversity, that my pulling away not only fractures that relationship, but that pulling away also dampens my desire. Have you experienced that as well? Well, there's a reason for that. Peter wants you to recognize that you need to put that away. And he puts it in a, in a, in a particular voice. He says the, it's, the, it's a middle participle. It's, it's a voice which emphasizes that only you can do this for yourself. It is something that you're required to, to do in order so that you can crave. Have you put away? Put, a, put aside. Put a stop to. The word is rid yourself. It's, it's often used throughout the New Testament in relationship to sin in your life. And, and here are some sins that, that, that Peter is, is focusing or drawing attention to. The sin of malice, which is just a, a general term for wickedness and baseness. It's, it's evil or hostility. The, the word for deceit, which is treachery or slyness or trickery. It's the word to bait or to defraud. 
The next is hypocrisy, which originally was used of those who would be in theater and who would wear a mask. The behavior that they would show would be inconsistent with their true self. They, they would not be genuine. Envy, which is just jealousy. It defines the attitude of those who resent others' prosperity. Envy is also contrary to love, for instead of desiring the best for others, it hopes for their downfall or prefers the advancement of self over the joy of others. And finally, slander. Slander, which is defamation or evil speech. It's kind of like it's onomatopoeia. Those of you who are familiar with uh, literature recognize that onomatopoeia are, are words that sound like the thing that, uh, that they're identifying. And it's the word katalalia, which helps you think about the, the tattling or the, the whispering behind the back. It's, it's the slandering that happens, the, the words that are meant to disparage others. So what is going on here? What is the significance of this command to, to put away from you all of these things? I don't think it's a coincidence that they all relate to brotherly love. I don't think it's a coincidence that they all relate to things that often happen in private, things that you can kind of keep a secret, things that may not necessarily be in full view, but they're in your heart. The things that settle in to, to you as an individual that, that help to, to permeate your responses to others, that, 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 that lead to bitterness and strife and envy and, and evil speaking. They are totally inconsistent with a, a life that is oriented towards God. Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers want you to recognize that there is something significant about the alignment of heart to God and to others, that as we are striving for this vertical relationship with God, uh, uh, an orientation of, of loving who God is and, and recognizing who He is and, and growing in relationship with God, it, it must be consistent with this horizontal relationship that we have with others. The two are interwoven in the Scripture so that Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, talks about this when he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If the Spirit is bringing to your mind, your attention, that there are things that are out of step in your relationship with the people that you're in community with, that you're in fellowship with, that you're in family with, Get the family business squared up. Listen to the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. And then you can begin as you're responding to what the Spirit is telling you in restoring relationships. Now there's sensitivity. Sensitivity to God. And now there can be a growing craving for the Word. The beloved Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There is this 
apparent continuity, the relationship that God has put you in, the family spiritual relationship, those horizontal relationships. If, if you are out of sync with the, the people in front of you that God has put you in relationship with, you can't hope to have a relationship with God. You, you can't hope for that craving of the word to grow in your heart. So, we recognize that we cannot have a craving for God's word if we remain in isolation to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because brotherly love is an active kind of love. Brotherly love is an initiating kind of love, a self-sacrificing kind of love. And as we saw last week, it is a sincere and fervent and continual and pure kind of love that springs from the heart. True compassion, true feelings, true emotion that's based and conditioned upon a will that says, I choose to love you. I appreciate the fact that Peter removes all the obstacles, all the barriers for you. In, by, by putting it this way, put away from yourself all of these things, which means... It's not dependent upon the responses of other people. It's not dependent upon their reaction. It is internal. It is based upon your response to the word of God and your desire to extend peace, whether or not they receive it. Now, Peter is not denying that offense occurs. He's not ignorant to the fact that challenges happen and conflicts happen in relationships. But he wants you to recognize that if you want to nurture this deep desire, this deep craving for the scripture, it depends on your willingness to put all of these things away. Well, how do I do this, maybe you ask? Ephesians chapter four, verses 31 and 32. I don't think I have the verse on the screen, but I would just encourage you to turn there with me because this is important. You're going to notice in this passage, these two verses, a lot of the same words that are coming up. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. It says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Sound familiar? Along with all malice. And here's the key. Here's how it happens. <laughs> it says, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what's the key? The key is choose forgiveness. The key is recognize that if this is a person in the family, this is a person that Jesus has already forgiven. And if Jesus has forgiven this person, because they're in the family, then you dare not put yourself as judge over God and say, well, he might say they're forgiven, but I'm not gonna say they're forgiven. Dangerous. Forgive as Christ forgave, meaning you represent him. Don't put yourself above God and suggest that because their offense against you is so terrible, that you can tell God that his forgiveness of this person who's part of the family doesn't qualify. Choose forgiveness, whether or not they come and ask for it. And second, practice kindness. 
Uh, the greatest way for us to begin to work out forgiveness in a really practical way so the, the, the difficulties and the conflicts in relationships begin to diminish is by choosing kindness. I, I love the way he puts this. He says, you put all these things away and let, or excuse me, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Meaning find ways to actively engage with love. Choose kindness. And you'll find that bitterness will begin to fade away. You'll find that your thoughts of them begin to be marked by love and not marked by frustration and hurt. And then you'll also find that God will begin to cultivate in your heart this deep craving and longing for the scripture. It will grow inside of you. You will find that Jesus will be sweeter and better than he's ever been before. And this is the clarion call throughout the rest of this letter. We're going to find as we work our way through that Peter can't avoid this ongoing topic of love the brotherhood. He says it in chapter 1 verse 22. We just looked at that. He'll say it again in chapter 2 verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In chapter 3, verse 8, he'll say, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In chapter 4, verse 8, he'll say, Above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let love cover it up. Let love be the mark of your life. Love one another. And as you love, you will find the benefits of this craving heart that seeks after God, desires Him, enjoys the experience of Him through His Word. He will be sweeter and better. Like the, like the, uh, the word that the psalmist says in Psalm 19, sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. It'll be just like that for you. And finally, what is the incentive the incentive is found in verse 3, and it is to remember the goodness of God. Remember the goodness of God. So crave the word. Love the people of God. Remember the goodness of God. And he is good, and Peter points to at least two reasons why he's good. At the end of verse 2, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? Because... This is what it leads to. You may grow up into salvation. Your salvation, your relationship with God is not just a one-time transaction. It is, it is a, a life that leads to faith. Faith that grows and faith that is continuing. Faith that endures. Faith that, that is cultivated. The just will live by faith. It will be the outward expression of your life as you continue to grow up in the salvation that you have been born into. This may grow is a passive verb, okay? And the, the beauty of that is this will be what happens if you crave the word. This will be what happens when you love the brothers. You will grow because God will make sure that you will grow up into salvation. It is his work. He has birthed you by the seed of his word. He will grow you by the seed of the word. He will make it happen. It is the promise that he has given to us in his word. 
In respect to salvation, this is the obvious object of a believer's spiritual growth. The word will grow them into a full and final expression of the sanctification aspect of their salvation. God will purify you by your word, his word. As, in, as he says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word will accomplish life, health, progress, growth, maturity, and spiritual usefulness as you apply yourself to, to know God through the scripture. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God's goodness leads to spiritual life. You can experience the, the health and growth of spiritual life as you plug in and crave the scripture. And he will grow you in your salvation and you will experience new dimensions of relationship with him. And then in chapter two, verse three, it says, if indeed you have tasted, the Lord is good. You can experience the goodness of the Lord by knowing and tasting him. He wants to be the, the full and final and ultimate experience of, of what is good for you. Psalm 34, verses 8 to 10, Peter is drawing from this passage, and, and he'll refer back to Psalm 34 several more times as we work our way through this little uh, letter. Psalm 34, 8 to 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And by the way, this is, this is probably the deepest darkest, hardest time in David's life. And this is his expression. Because he's tasted the Lord through faith. Now notice it says in verse nine, fear the Lord, you his saints. Does this sound familiar? Conduct yourselves in fear. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now is this the health, wealth gospel? I love God and he gives me everything that I want? <laughs> No, what this is, is you love God, he gives you all of himself, and he is all good. You can't desire anything more than him because he is everything good, everything pure. The Lord is good, so when your affections are oriented towards him, he gives you all of himself, and you experience all that is good in him. Peter wants you to understand the significance of, of experiencing and tasting of him. But you cannot taste him without trusting him. You, you can't taste that the Lord is good without trusting that he is good. How, how does that play out? Well, if he is provider, you can't experience him as provider. You can't taste him as provider unless you're coming to the point in life where you have a lack in your life and you have to look to him. God, are you good? God, can you help? God, are you the one who provides for my needs according to your, the riches of your goodness? Yes, he is. And I'm tasting it because I'm trusting him. The same is true in tasting him as a friend that sticks closer than a brother. 
When everyone else abandons you and you look to him as the only one who is friend and you see and you taste, ah, he is friend. He is kind. You can taste that he is sustainer. When you feel at the end of yourself and you wonder how you're going to be able to serve your family one more moment and you realize as you turn to God and you taste of his ability to sustain you, that he can do that, and trusting him, you taste, ha, he is sustainer. The same is true of him as being protector, or wisdom, or peace. You taste those things as you trust him for those things. As you come to the end of yourself and recognize that you're not smart enough, you need wisdom from above. You, you need to pour yourself into the scriptures and, 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 and experience the wisdom that only comes from him. You can taste him when you trust him. I've put on the back of your sheet, I think there are 27 verses or more that point to the benefits of the word of God. And we don't have time to, to look at every single one of them. And I know it's kind of small. I'm sorry that uh, you may not be able to actually read those, but I would encourage you to, to pick up um, a study sheet at the, at the back of the sanctuary when you leave. But let me just walk through some of these and, and just help you get a sense for how marvelous the Word of God is and, and, and how he, is, he, he has given you access to, to everything you need for life and godliness in His Word. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You need some reviving this morning? You need some refreshment this morning? <laughs> Go to the Word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You need some wisdom today? You need some direction for life? Well, God's word can do that for you. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You feeling discouraged? The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19.11 says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The blessings of the craving for the word, accessing the scripture, seeing all the benefits that are there from knowing and loving Jesus. Psalm 119. It's a whole chapter in the book of Psalms. I think uh, over 170 verses and in every section is, uh, is an acronym that uses a letter of the Hebrew alphabet to identify the, the wonder of the word. Psalm, 19, uh, Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. One of my favorites is Psalm 119 verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Moving into the New Testament, Peter himself expresses the wonder of the word when he's speaking to Jesus. He says in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture 
is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What would happen if this week you decided, God, I don't have these cravings. I don't crave your word the way I once did. I don't crave the word the way I want to crave the word. Please grow in my heart this affection, this longing, this insatiable appetite for the scripture and whatever is in the way, whatever is is interfering with, with this craving for your word, whether it's malice or deceit or hypocrisy, envy or slander, whatever it is, whatever sin there is in my life, God, by your Holy Spirit, reveal that to me and I will commit this week to obey your Spirit's prompting. And I will make, I will make uh, uh, not just an effort, I, I will pursue peace, I will pursue reconciliation, I will seek to do whatever it takes so that I can crave your word this way. What would happen in your life in terms of fruitfulness, in terms of spiritual productivity, in terms of peace, in terms of relationship with God? What would happen this week if that was your desire, your commitment, your priority. Peter, I want you to understand, as we prioritize these things, the inevitable result is you will grow up into salvation. You will grow in maturity. You will be more like Jesus. God will do the work that he has promised to do in transforming you from one degree of glory to the other. And people will see God in your life. What might happen in your family, in your community, in our church, in the surrounding area, if that were to be the commitment of every one of us here? In committing to be together as God's people, in committing to crave the word as God has called us to crave it. Wow, what a church that might be. I can only imagine that as Peter is writing these words, his mind is going back to that experience in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, where, where Peter's like, let me tell you something about that kind of church, the kind of church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching and prayer and to fellowship. Let me tell you what happens in that kind of church. Explosive growth. Explosive maturity. Explosive unity in terms of commitment to one another because of the testimony of God is is anchoring itself into the hearts of the people and and unifying them for the mission that God has called them to. Oh, to be that kind of church. May God help us. Let me pray. Lord, we are after allegiance to Jesus. We desire to crave the word that you have given to us. And oh God, we, in craving the word, desire to align our hearts in obedience to the scriptures, which is first to love, love God, and love our neighbors. Lord, whatever it is this week that's in the way, whatever has kept us distant, whatever has kept us isolated, whatever has has, uh, created boundaries in relationship, oh God, help us this week to begin the process of knocking them down. Even if it's just a personal 
response in our hearts to, to overcome and cover over a multitude of sins. Help us not to take offense, but help us, oh God, to love the way you love. Or even on the cross, you say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. May that be our posture, a desire to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. May love never fail in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go this week.